Um, we see this time that we gather together as a privilege, and so we want to give a priority to hearing God's word preached. It's not that I'm a priority, but it's that God's word is a priority, and that he is to be preeminent really in all that we do. And so this morning we want to give attention to God and his word and what he has to say to us. In a few weeks we're going to be beginning our series in the book of Nehemiah. But for now, uh, and Nehemiah, by the way, is all about rebuilding. It's about how God rebuilds his people through his word. But before we do that, we wanted to kind of relay the same foundations for our church. So we know that what is God about rebuilding in us? What, is, what are we seeking for God to build in us or rebuild in us? And so last week, we brought a message about what's so special about the church. And we saw that the church is priceless. It's the bride of Christ, that the church is preeminent in God's purposes. And it's, it's the, the local church is the manifestation of God's body. And it's how God carries out his purposes in the earth. And today, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a gospel community or what it means to be a gospel-centered community. If you have been in our church, you know that not only are we a church, but our vision is to be a gospel-centered church. And we want to be gospel-centered in our community we want to be gospel-centered in our worship, and we want to be gospel-centered in our mission. And so over the next couple of messages, we're going to focus on the mission portion of that. But today, we're going to be talking about what it means to be gospel-centered in our community. So if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. It's the primary passage that we're going to look at of what does it look like? What does it mean to be a gospel community? What are we shooting for? What are we aiming for as a church? What kind of community do we desire to be as God's people? If we are the church, the, the bride, the body, the family, the temple of Jesus Christ, then, then what are we shooting for? What, what is that supposed to look like? We're going to see that in Colossians 3, verse 11 through 6, 17. And so this morning, I want to ask you to do something. We don't do it every week, but I want to ask you to go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word because we want to acknowledge that, that God's Word is the only inspired thing, the only infallible thing, if you will, that you will hear this morning. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 3, 11 to 17, this is God's Word. Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us alone to figure out what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to look like and, and what you've called us to, Lord. Thank you for giving us a blueprint. God, thank you not only for calling us to be your community, your body in you, but God, thank you for enabling us to be like you. Thank you, Lord, that you, you don't leave us in our old nature. You don't leave us in our old selves. You don't leave us in the old way of doing things, Lord, but you bring us into the new. You make us new. You make us alive. And, and then not only that, Lord, you give us a new community, a new people. And God, I pray that you would enable us to be who you have already called us to be, to put on Christ, Lord, to Jesus, would you be our all in all as a church? 
above every prayer, would you, Jesus, be our all, in all, as a church? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you remember, this past July and August, there were a lot of cicadas. We had a church retreat, and it was called Renew. And when we went away to the retreat, the kids had a time by themselves, a little time, not, not by themselves, sorry. Kids had a supervised time where they could go and, and do different games and the like. And during that time, all the kids collected little cicada nymph shells. I actually have a picture of some of them, just a, a small portion of the cicada nymph shells. That's not popcorn. That's, that's cicada nymph shells or skins. And they collected, I think, about 10 times that amount of cicada shells. The cicada shells were everywhere, but they were empty they were empty. And I thought how appropriate that we would have empty cicada shells at a place called Renew because God brings new life out of the old. And cicadas are kind of a, a great picture of that. Out of, the, out of all of those molts, new cicadas crawled. And together, all those cicadas, at least in August, they were making a loud, joyful noise. They were a cacophony, really, that almost seemed like one voice, and it was pulsating. If you ever stood outside on a, on a summer night, in a warm summer night, you can hear the cicadas, and it's like this pulsating sound, this rhythmic sound that the, all of them together seem to make. And at times, it's deafening. To some, that's a comforting noise. It's a good noise. To me, I, I can't stand the noise of cicadas. To my wife, she would love to leave the windows open and hear the cicadas on a summer night. But cicadas are kind of a good picture of what transpires to us as Christians. I have another couple slides for you. In this next slide, you see a cicada coming out of his nymph shell. And, and the nymph shell is this brown old shell. And then out of this shell comes this new green cicada. And then you flip over to the next slide as well. And then out of that is birthed this thing that doesn't resemble really very much this old nymph. is this beautiful, vibrant, verdant green cicada. And it's capable of making a noise and flying on high instead of crawling in the, in the ground and crawling in the dirt. Now this thing soars. And that's kind of a picture of what transpires to us as Christians. God takes the stuff that we are and he makes us new. Yes, we, we kind of resemble a little what we are and on the outside we do. But internally, Jesus makes us brand new so that we're no longer crawling in the dirt. We're no longer going about in the ground. But he enables us to soar in him. He makes us brand new. He gives us a new song. In conversion, our old self died. If you go up a couple verses in verse 9 of Colossians 3, and we've been made new. We've been given a new life. We've, we've put on Jesus Christ now, and so he has, he has made us different. And we're going through this process of becoming who we are made to be in Jesus Christ, just like that cicada has to sit outside of his nymph shell for a little while until his wings develop and grow. He's in a process of becoming more and more, growing into who God made him to be. And as believers, we are in the process of growing into who God made us to be. And that growth that we have, it, it doesn't transpire outside of the church. But God has placed us in his body. He's placed us in this new community. And in, in this new community, the heart of the new community is to be in Jesus Christ. I love how Paul says it. He says that Christ is all in all. That's the center, really, of, of us focusing on what does it mean to be a new community? What it means to be a new community is that the heart of that is that Christ is all in all. Now this morning, you, you may or may not have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I, I hope you have. If not, there's no way possible that you can live like what we're going to be talking about this morning unless Christ is all to you. And let me encourage you to place your faith in Jesus Christ, that he might be all in all for you. Look at verse 11. We see really the main idea of this whole passage is that the heart of our new community is that Christ is all. Look in verse 11, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Let me ask you, is Christ all to you this morning? Is Christ all to you this morning? Do you see that for every other believer here who's a part of the church in this community, that Christ not only is all for you, but he is all for them and he is in all. And because of that, because Christ is all in all, here, 
Speaking of the church body, the church community, there is neither barbarian or Scythian, Greek or Jew, slave or free, circumcised, uncircumcised. Instead, Christ is to be our all. You know, as as humans, once we were separated from God, humanity began to distinguish themselves by their tribe. And, and you can see that it's really common today as well. It wasn't just true for the Jews and for the Greeks. It's true for us today as well. We naturally look for something to be confident in. We boast in where we came from, what we look like. We boast in our practice. You ever do that? You ever boast in your heritage or where you come from or the town you grew up in or what group you were a part of? You ever boast in those things? You can see it everywhere around you. You know, everybody thought that this, this new enlightened age that we're in, this, this, this age where we're all connected through the internet now, that, that it's all kind of one flat world, that, that we would all be unified now, but it's not ended up that way, has it? And it's been in the news very recently about how people see themselves as better than others. And racism and division and so many evil practices of separation exist. People boasting in what they look like, where they're from, what they practice. And in some ways, we're, we're not a more united society. We're actually a more fractured society. You know, you have red and blue states. People take pride in their differences, what they identify in, their cultural heritage, their preferences, their practices. And isn't, isn't that common? We, we humans like to take pride in our differences, don't we? What do you like to take pride in? You know, I don't know about you, but for over the last month, I can think of several occasions where I have at some point in time took pride over my differences. Either where I came from, my background, what I know, what I understand. We can take pride in our differences. And in those moments, Christ is not our all. We can highlight those differences. We can praise them. We can take pride in differences and we we identify based on those differences, that heritage, our preferences, our practices. You know, the Jews, they defined everybody in the world on the basis of whether they were Greek or Gentile or Jew. Either you were outside of God's people and therefore Greek or Gentile or you were a Jew. There was only two kinds of people, either Jews or Greeks, Gentiles. It wasn't just Jews that did this, though. The Romans did that as well. And in this context, the people that Paul is writing to in Colossae, they, they divided themselves as well. They, they were either Roman citizens or they were not. They were either had the prestige of having Roman citizenship or, or they were barbarians in the Roman mind. Barbarians didn't, I mean, Romans didn't classify themselves between Romans and Jews. They were Romans and everybody else was barbarian. Although there was another class of barbarian that was especially bad barbarians, but Scythians... And, and down from there, they would, Romans or barbarians or Greeks or barbarians. And, and, but those barbarians, they could be slave barbarians. They could be free barbarians. But, you know, they, weren't, they were just barbarians. They classified themselves that way. We have a tendency today to do that as well, whether we admit it or not. And sometimes it's painfully evident. You know, I don't think, though, that the Jews and the Romans were the only ones to do that. In the church body, we can tend to do the same kind of thing. You know, I grew up whatever, or I was this, or I believe this, or I have this practice, or I have this preference, or I dress this way, or I speak this way, or I have these things. And so we can identify based on those differences, those preferences, those backgrounds. But God is telling us in this passage that that is not who we've been made to be. We have been made new to be something different, to be defined by someone different. We've been made new so that we are now defined as in Christ. We're defined by Christ. That's the first major idea we're going to see is that as a community, we are defined by Christ. That's what we want to be defined as as a church. We don't want to be defined by what our preferences are, what our practices are. Are you a homeschooler? Are you an unschooler? Are you a public schooler, a private schooler? Are you um, a parent? Are you a single? Are you this? Are you that? No, we are in Christ, defined by Christ. Christ is our all in all. 
as a community, we're defined by Jesus Christ. How do you define yourself? How do you define yourself? It was a brand new concept. To, to the Jews he was writing to, it was a new concept. It was either Jew or Gentile. And, and Paul elsewhere, he says, you know, no, Jesus came so he can make one new man out of the two. One new man, neither Jew nor Gentile, in Christ. Our definition as a community now is in Christ. That's who we are. We're, we are Christians. Christ is our all. That's who we're to be defined by. And he's in all. You know, people define themselves in all kinds of terms naturally. Some people take pride in their gender. You know, I'm a man, or I'm a woman, or I'm a real woman, or whatever that might mean. Or their heritage, or their ethnicity. You know, I'm German, or I'm Norwegian, or I'm Native American, or I'm Scottish, or Samoan, or Polynesian, or Irish, or Italian. And that can become an identity. Peruvian, Mexican, Cuban, Cameroonian, French, English, whatever, whoever I've missed here. Insert your own ethnic heritage, your own background, and then insert the fact that that's not how we're to identify ourselves. Now, I don't mean you can't admit that you came, your parents came from Italy, your parents came from Germany or some, wherever you came from. But what I'm saying is that's not our primary identity any longer, is that as a community, we're defined by Christ. But is he your all? How do you define yourself? Are you defined by Christ? Others take pride but define themselves according to their profession today. You know, I'm a pastor, or I'm an IT guy, or I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a professor, I'm a builder, I'm a teacher, a banker, whatever profession, I'm an engineer, whatever profession you might be. I'm a cop, I'm a whatever. How do you define yourself? Others take pride by defining their social status, whether they admit it or not that they're rich or they're poor or they're middle class, and they take pride in those things. People define themselves by any number of fraternities or sororities or by clubs. They take pride in those definitions. But if you are a Christian, those distinctions are no longer to define you. That distinction that you have in your mind, those distinctions are no longer to define us as a gospel-centered community. We're to be defined by Jesus Christ, that he is to be our all. How do you define yourself? We're to be defined by Christ. You know, maybe you define yourself as being in the military or define yourself as based on your past. But we're not to be divided by background or ethnicity or social clubs or practice. As a new creation, we're defined by the fact that Jesus Christ is our all in in all, and he is the greatest of all. And only as Christ is your all can you live the way that God is calling you to live in his new community. That's what we want to be about as a local church. We want to be defined by Jesus because we are defined by Jesus. As a gospel-centered community, he defines us. He is our all in all. That's what is meant to define us. And as we relate to each other, let those definition, let that definition of who we are in Jesus Christ affect how you relate to the other person. Not just are you in Christ, is Christ your all, but he's Sally's all and Jim's all and who else's all you can think of here. He is all for that person as well. And he is in all. He's not just in you, but he's in your fellow member of the body of Christ. Let me ask you, though, is Christ your all? Do you see that he is in all of the other believers here as well? If so, it redefines how you live in community. It redefines how you relate to each other. It redefines how you view each other. Now look down to the first part of verse 12. Before Paul defines what our behavior should look like as a new community, he defines things even further. He says, not only is Christ your all and in all, he defines who we are. As a new community, God defines who we are. And, and look down at verse 12, the first part there. He says, before he defines what behavior should look like, he defines things further. Look at, at verse 12. He says, put on then as what? You can say it aloud as what? God's chosen ones. Beloved, holy. Notice we're defined as chosen You and I are defined, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are defined as chosen by God. I recently watched the Hobbit movie with my kids. I'm a little slow when watching movies. 
rented it for like 99 cents on Amazon. I'm cheap. So we finally got to the 2012 movie, and The, the Hobbit. And, and in the movie, there's a great scene there where Gandalf, he comes up to Bilbo, and Bilbo is totally not interested in anything that Gandalf has to say. He's not interested in where Gandalf's going. He's not interested in a quest. He's not interested in adventure. And he says, thank you very much. Good day. And so he, he goes into his little hobbit hole. But Gandalf has other plans. And so he, he kind of scrawls on the outside of his door and he marks him and he chooses him. Before, before he chose, before Bilbo chose to go on the quest to become part of this, this group, Gandalf chose him. And then eventually later, because he was chosen, he chose to go on this quest, this adventure to join the group. I think it's a neat picture of how God chooses us even when we are not seeking to be a part of his people, when we might have nothing to do with this great adventure called the Christian life, when we don't want to join him, when we don't want to follow Jesus, he comes and he chooses us. He defines us as chosen. And why is that important? It's important because there will be times when you will waver in your trust in God. You will waver in whether or not you really are able to follow God. And you need to look back and say, you know what? With confidence, God chose me. I am chosen in him. He defines me. So you know what? I can live this Christian life. I can relate to other believers because I've been defined by him. I've been chosen by him. He chose me prior to to us choosing to join his people. And that gives us security in him. And why is that important? It's important because there will be times when you might feel rejected in this body. You might feel unloved. Now, that's not the goal. That is not the goal as a community. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But there will be times when other believers give off the impression that they don't really love being around you. You might feel rejected. You might feel like you're not a part of the group. You might feel like you don't belong. And by the way, everybody at times feels that way. It's just that everybody feels like they're the only ones who feel that way. And in those moments, what you need to do is to remember the most important thing is that Jesus defines me. He is my all. And by the way, he has chosen me. And so because he's chosen me, my confidence is going to be in his choosing of me. Whether or not people seem to reject me or not, I'm going to continue to pursue him. In his calling, because he's chosen me. And there's security in that choosing. It's choosing not based on what we've done, but based on his love for us. Choosing based on his initiative. Resting and secure in his choosing. I love how in Romans 8.33, we just finished the book of Romans as a church. And in in Romans 8.33, it says, Who will bring any charge against the elect, God's elect, his chosen ones? And and the answer really is no one. It's it's God who justifies. Do you see yourself and your fellow church member as chosen by God? Not just yourself, but you see the person sitting next to you or behind you or three rows back or three rows forward. Do you see them as being chosen by God as well? If so, that's going to change how you relate to each other in community. But we're not only defined as chosen, the next part he says is as God's chosen ones. And he says something there that's, That's really breathtaking. He says, holy. Holy. We are God's holy people. He he already calls us holy. Now, I don't know about you, but there there is rarely a day when I really feel holy. How about you? Do you wake up every day thinking, I'm just holy this morning, you know? I don't wake up naturally feeling holy. I don't wake up naturally thinking of myself as holy. Holy. But I need to, to preach this good news that I am actually not only chosen to him, but I've been made holy. And it doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means that he sees me as perfect. He sees me as holy. He defines me as holy, as set apart, as his saint. And he also defines the person in the room here as a fellow saint. We're holy. Set apart for his purposes is what guides us. If you understand that you have been made holy, that your righteousness is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, then you don't need to seek righteousness from someone else. And you're not so worried about getting approval from other people if you see that you're already completely approved by God. As a community, we don't want to be a community that is seeking approval from each other all the time, that is, that is fearing what, what do we think about each other, but we are secure. We want to be secure in the fact that we are not only chosen, but we're holy. 
And also at the same time too, it's, it's meant to affect how you relate to each other. Don't relate to someone else as if they are primarily a sinner in this room. If they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, you need to relate to other people as if they really are who God said they are. They're holy. They're set apart for his purposes. They're righteous in him despite the behavior that we might experience. They are holy and they are being transformed and being made holy. And because we are holy, we can have confidence to put on the new self. Because we're just putting on who God has already made us to be. The question is, do you define yourself as one who is right and holy before God because of Jesus Christ? If not, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, let, let that definition wash over you and let, let yourself revel in the fact that he has made you not only chosen but holy. He's made you righteous in him. You are secure in him. You don't have to look for approval from other people. But the other question is, do you define your fellow believer here as one who is right and holy before God because of Jesus Christ? If so, you're going to be less concerned with nitpicking those little things that you see, those little differences that you see, those little sins that you see, and you're going to be able to overlook some things because you know that ultimately that's not who they are called to be. That's not who God has made them. They are holy. They're God's chosen ones. They're God's holy ones. That doesn't mean we don't correct anything, but it's a posture and an attitude that we're to have towards one another. See each other as holy. Not only that, though, there's something amazing here. We're defined as not only chosen, not only holy, but beloved. What a sweet word that is. What a sweet word. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones. As God's holy ones. As beloved. Believer, when we relate to each other in community, we are to see each other, to relate to each other as beloved by God. Now, in order to relate to somebody else as beloved by God, you must understand that you are beloved by God. He has dearly loved you. He has set his affection on you. He has loved you with an, a never-ending love, a love that is self-giving, a love, a love that is self-denying, a love that went all the way to the cross. You are truly beloved. And not only are you beloved, but you know what? The person who you are struggling with today, if it's a spouse or a child or a friend or, or, or care group member, care group leader, me, whoever you are struggling with, they are beloved and you are beloved by God. Do you see them as beloved? Do you define yourself and them as beloved? If you're beloved, you don't have to seek the love of others as an idol. You're not bound to worry about whether or not somebody else loves us right or loves us well enough or loves us good enough. Or we're not hung up on whether or not somebody else reciprocates our love. You ever been hung up on that? You know, I've really tried and I've really reached out and I've really loved those people, but I don't feel like any of those people ever loved me back. What's the antidote to that attitude? What's the antidote to feeling that way? It's not that people love you in return, although that's the goal is to love one another, but the antidote to your attitude, to my attitude, when I have that feeling of, hey, I've loved and I've not been loved in return, I've, I've loved and I've reached out and it's not been reciprocated, and then we're tempted to be in a self-pity party, the antidote to that is understanding one thing, that you are beloved, and that you don't require and so therefore you don't demand someone else to love you in return because you're secure in the fact that you're beloved. So as beloved, then you can put on the things that we're going to get to in a moment. The heart of our new community is that Christ is all and we are defined by Christ. Is Christ your all? Are you defined by Christ? Do you see yourselves and others here as, as chosen, as holy, as beloved? If so, then... That's the basis, that's the foundation for how we can relate to each other in community. The basis for how we relate in community is not a bunch of moralistic, therapeutic, deistic commands to do all these things. The basis for our relating to each other in community is who we are in Christ, that we are defined by Jesus Christ, that he has called us, he's chosen us, he has adopted us, that we are beloved in him. We're holy in him. 
And so as those things, if Christ is our all, and by the way, there's no way you're gonna be able to relate to each other in community, putting on all the things we were talking about in a second, unless Christ is your all. If you are looking for someone else here to be your all, you will be severely disappointed. If you are looking to Aaron or I to be your all as your pastors, you will be severely disappointed. If you're looking to your caregiver leader to be your all, you will be severely disappointed. If you're looking to your spouse or your friend or your fellow church member to be your all, you will be disappointed. You will not be able to relate to each other in a loving community. But if Christ is your all in all, because he is our all in all, that's what we champion. He's our all in all. He has made us, he has chosen us, he has made us holy and beloved. And, and so, resting on that foundation, that's the foundation that we're to relate to each and every person here in community, and that's the, the means by which we can be clothed with Christ. Because the second thing we're going to see, really, in, in verses 12 to 14, is that as a community, we are to be clothed with Christ. He talks about all these put-ons, but don't skip over who we are and and who is to be our all. That it's not about moralism and just doing things. You see, because he has become our all in all, because we are new in him, because he has made us alive in him, because we've been chosen and made holy and beloved in him, then because of that we are free now to put on the clothes of Christ. You see, before we couldn't put on the clothes of Christ, they did not fit us. We couldn't crawl out of our shells before. We couldn't slough off the old man and and put on the new. We couldn't soar to the heights that he has for us. We couldn't sing the song he has because we were not new at one time. But now he's made us new. He's our all in all. And so because of that, he frees us and he enables us. Because he's our all, he enables us to put on Christ Jesus, to be clothed with Christ. As a community, we're to be clothed with Christ. It's the second idea we're going to look at here. And if, if, you, if you browse Pinterest, which I, my family really enjoys and I think is maddening, by the way, and I, I don't know why. Maybe it's just because I'm a guy and I find all these pictures and stuff just really bothersome. But if you browse Pinterest or you, maybe you go through Facebook or Instagram or whatever social media, or maybe you subscribe to a magazine or you browse the internet looking for your news, it is obvious that the culture around us defines itself by looks. That's how the culture around us defines itself, by looks, by outward things, by externals. And it's even more pronounced if you're a kid, if you're a child, it's, it's hard to be a child. Now, now most, of those, most of the time, our, our definition of who we are by externals, hopefully that goes away by the time at least you hit your 20s. But you know what? I think most of us still struggle by our externals, by defining ourselves by these externals. People are openly judged at times for what they're wearing and whether it's cool or trendy or expensive or cheap. People define themselves by what they wear or what they put on their faces or their bodies or they have a tendency to associate with people that look like them, that dress like them, that act like them, that talk like them, that have the same skin color as them. Or maybe people outwardly look like they're from a socioeconomic status that's similar to ours, and so we associate with them. Or, But as Christians, we're no longer to define ourselves by outward appearances, and that's not primarily what we're to seek to put on, and we're not to seek to put on all these externalities, and we're not trying to all look identical and look the same. You know, we're not all trying to dress the same, but we're also not trying to look like these Christian robots either. We're to put on something that's not a put-on, it's not an externality, it's not a fake thing. We're not to put on Christianese and act a certain way. There was an old artist named Steve Taylor used to have a song that I want to be a clone. That's not our goal is to to clone so we're looking homogenous and looking identical. No, that's that's not what gospel community looks like. It's not homogeneity. It's not that we all have to look and sound a certain way. Gospel community is, is... looking and sounding a certain way, not without wear clothes, but to be clothed with Christ. That's how we're to 
to be defined by. We're to be clothed with Christ. We're not to define ourselves by outward appearances and be conformed to the right way of doing things. Instead, we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's not based on those outward appearances or ethnic associations. Paul says, hey, all of you, because you are all in Christ, because you are chosen, because you are holy, because you are beloved, here's what you're to primarily be putting on. Don't be about all these other things. Don't be about all these externalities. Don't let those things get in your way. What would be put on is we're to put on, look down your Bibles, the very first thing he tells us, he says, put on compassion. Let me see which verse is it here. Verse 12, put on compassion. And, and how in the world can we do that? We can be compassionate because Jesus has been compassionate to us because he is our all. Because his compassion is everything to us, we can then put on compassion. These character traits that we're called to here, they're all traits of our new master. And it, and it, and it only makes sense that we would look like him now that we've been made into his image. And now that he is our all and in all and in all of us as believers, it only makes sense that we would then put on the new nature. Put on compassion. Put on your wings of compassion. And this, this text, the text says compassion, a heart of compassion. It, it's, it's literally the, the bowels of compassion. It's the deepest seat of your emotions. You know how you have a gut feeling or something's gut-wrenching or you don't feel so good or you feel this longing towards something. And, and he says, put on this at the heart of who you are. Put on compassion towards each other. It's the same compassion that Jesus had towards people in need. Put on compassion to others in need here. And by the way, in case you think that someone else here might not be as needy as you, they might not look needy, but they are in need of compassion. They're in need of grace. They're in need of of love, affection. They are in need of your care. They're in need of your grace. They're in need of God's grace. You know, Mark 6, Jesus looks on the people and he says, he looks on them with this this urge, this compassionate urge because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We're called to clothe ourselves with this kind of compassion to, in our responses to others, when we see those in need. How do you relate to somebody else in the church when you see that they're in need? We're to be clothed with compassion that moves not just intellectually, but emotionally in our guts and how we feel towards them. Clothe yourself with that. Seek to put on those feelings towards others. The question is, do you display the compassion of Christ to people in the church? If not, why not? Are you getting hung up on what you see them as, or do you see them as who Christ sees them as? The next thing we're told to clothe ourselves with, look down in your Bibles, it's not just compassion, but kindness. Kindness is listed as a fruit of the Spirit in, in Galatians 5.22. It's an attribute of God that we're to put on. We're to put on being kind to each other. Now, why does he tell us that? I think that Paul tells us that, God tells us that, because you know what? And by nature, most of us are not just genuinely kind to each other. I can think of a few people who, though, exhibit kindness that's like, my goodness, that is inspiring because it's so genuine, it's so real. If you know Judy Easton, I was just talking to somebody the other day about how Judy Easton is an example of somebody who's just genuinely kind. And it's crazy because it's not made up, it's not a put on, it's not fake. That's what's so compelling. And we're to have that kind of kindness. It's the kindness that Luke 6.35 talks about. He says in Luke 6.35, I think we have it for you on the overheads, it says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind. What does it look like to be kind? Loving your enemies. And surely nobody here is your enemy. He says, love your enemy, be kind. Kindness is doing good. Lending. Expecting nothing in return. Ooh, that hurts, doesn't it? Expect nothing in return. That's kindness. And he says, your reward would be great. You'll be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind, like that, to ungrateful and evil men. Because God is kind to us when we are ungrateful and evil. 
He says, then put on that same kind of kindness to each other. That's how we relate to each other, with compassion, with kindness. I, I like in Romans 2, 4, he says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? what he's saying is, are you acting like the kindness of God doesn't lead you to repentance? Don't you know the kindness of God leads you to repentance? If you really understand the kindness of God leads you to repentance, then don't think lightly of his kindness. And in Colossians, he says, put on kindness. It's not natural to us. It's the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives. But if Christ is your all and you see his kindness, it will then be an overflow of kindness towards each other. In order to live like that, we need the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. But we have it. We've been chosen. We've been made beloved. The next virtue we're told to close ourselves with is humility. He says, put on compassion and kindness and humility. And that one's a little hard, isn't it? You know, humility, in Philippians, he defines it as, as thinking of others as more significant than yourself. Humility is preferring others as if they are more significant, as if their opinions, their preferences, their desires actually matter more. That's humility. It's a way that was contrary to the culture that the Colossians lived in, and it's contrary to the way the culture around us lives in as well. You know, the culture around us brags about who they are. You know, even... I won't go there. Uh, So... Brags about greatness, brags about how great they are and how wealthy we are, how powerful we are, and, and, and we're to clothe ourselves with humility. It's not a self-seeking. You know, false humility is manipulative. It's, it's trying to get something from somebody else. It's, it's seeking our own good by pretending. It's seeking to gain honor or influence or respect from acting humble. But that's not what God's talking about. He says, put on the humility of Jesus Christ that humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, who didn't consider himself equal with God. But in everything, he humbled himself for our sake. If Christ is your all, then he's going to inspire you to put on humility because he ultimately put on humility for you, for me. Let me ask you, in your care group, in this room, in the church, do you humbly look out for the interests of others? Do you count others as more significant than yourself? Or do you think that your opinion, your preference, your desires are more important? Do you think that your way of doing fellowship, do you think that your way of doing care group, your way of doing church, your way of doing whatever, your way of doing a Bible study, your way of all these things, do you think that that's more important? Do you think that's the right way? Now, it's okay to have convictions. We're all called to have good biblical convictions, but we're called to hold those things humbly, to put on humility in those convictions. He says, let, if you are new in Christ Jesus, put on humility. That's a struggle, isn't it? You know, I, I, I think I'm right about most things. I, 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 I hate to say that out loud, I hate to admit that, but it's true. I think it's true for most of us. We just don't like to admit it. Because otherwise we wouldn't do the things we did if we didn't think we were right in doing them. And even when we're wrong, we like to pretend we're right. You know, do you consider that you could be wrong, that your perspective could be off? Do you at least hold your perspective as if you might be mistaken and someone else might be right? I'm not saying you have to give up your your convictions or give up what you believe that God has called you to, but we have to relate to each other in a way that is humble. That's the gospel-centered community that we're looking for, that we're striving for, that we're looking to put on. Not as a put on, not as a fakery, but as the clothing of Jesus Christ. If you're not relating that well, how will you seek to put on humility today? How will you do that? 
You know, if clothes make the man in the world around us, then these kind of clothes make the new godly man that we're called to be. If we live like this with fellow Christians in the church, then our church will not have the tensions and the conflict and the pride that so often comes from asserting ourselves and demanding our way and asserting our own selfish desires. We want to be a community that lays down our desires and lays down our lives for each other. Why? Because Christ is our all and in all. Because we're chosen in him. Because we're holy in him. Because we're beloved by him. Because he has laid down his all. The next verse we see there is meekness. It's a word that we don't really comprehend very well in our Western kind of competition-driven culture. You know, meekness is not prized in business. Meekness is not prized in athletics. It's not prized in, in the most recent NCAA championship that we, we saw. It's not prized in NFL. It's not prized in politics. But it was prized by Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior who brought about his kingdom without using any force. He didn't push. He didn't demand. He, he described himself as meek. Now, that didn't mean he was wimpy. It didn't mean that he was feeble or timid, but he, didn't, he wasn't forcing. Word for meekness, it's really defined as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's not being overly impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. You and I are not the most important people in the room. And I'm not even going to say it's the other person in the room. I'm saying it's Jesus. If he is our all, if he's the most important person in our church, then we'll be able to put on meekness. You know, assertiveness, standing up for our rights is praised and supported. We're told to, we have to vigorously defend, fight for our rights. And yet we're called to meekness and gentleness that looks like Jesus giving up his rights. Not demanding our own way, not seeking to be vindicated. But let me ask you, are you seeking to be meek with your fellow believers here? Or do you assert your rights? Your privileges. The next piece of clothing we're called to put on is patience. Now, he would never tell the church to put on patience if it wasn't required. He wouldn't tell the church to put on compassion if you didn't need compassion. If it wasn't required, if it wasn't demanded because of you and me. We require compassion. We require humility because you know what? We're proud. We require meekness because we do assert our rights. We require patience. Why? Because we... We try people's patience. You and I, we try people's patience. Don't just think that I'm the only one who tries your patience. You try someone else's patience here too. And so we're to put on patience. I like how L.H. Marshall put it. He describes patience. He says that long-suffering that endures wrong and puts up with the exasperating conduct of others. I love that. The long-suffering that endures wrong and puts up with the exasperating conduct of others rather than flying into a rage or desiring vengeance. Boy, I want to have that kind of patience that endures wrong, that puts up with the exasperating conduct of others rather than flying into rage or desiring vengeance, even secretly. Do you put on patience when others are exasperating. That's what we're called to. Why? Because you know what? Your and my behavior is exasperating or would be exasperating to God. Jesus, he was tried. His patience was tried here on earth. He says, Lord, how long do I have to put up with these people? Now, he wasn't lacking patience, but he was drawing attention to the fact that they required patience. We require patience, and yet God is patient with us. He is long-suffering with us. He puts up with our exasperating conduct. He doesn't fly into rage or take vengeance on us. He, he took vengeance on his own son. And it says that in his forbearance, in his patience, he stored up wrath until 
Christ's coming so that he might pour out wrath on his own son. He is the God of ultimate patience, and so he calls us to put on patience as our all. Christian, fellow believer, do you demand justice or are you patient? Where do you need to put on patience with somebody else here? Where do you need to remember that Christ is your all, that he has been patient with you? Well, then in verse 13, he explains these attributes, that these attitudes he's commanded, what they look like in action. He, he says, if you, if you wear these virtues, it's going to look like something. It's going to look like bearing with one another. Bearing long with one another. Bearing with each other. Forgiving each other. He says, Jesus Christ has forgiven us. Mutual relational endurance in, and tolerance and complete forgiveness are what we are called to in this verse. We're called to this mutual tolerance, mutual endurance, mutual patience, complete forgiveness. As God and Jesus Christ has forgiven us. If he is our all, if you see just how much he's forgiven us of, then the sins of somebody else here in community with, they will pale in comparison. So often we are more aware of sins against us. Why? Because we are less aware of Jesus being our all and the fact that he has forgiven all of our sins against him. If you are struggling with an awareness of the sins of somebody else here, you're struggling with forgiveness, you are probably struggling with an awareness of your own forgiveness and seeing just how much you've been forgiven of. And he says, just like Jesus has forgiven us, we're to forgive each other. There's a story that Kent Hughes tells from a, a guy named John Perkins, and he has a book called Let Justice Roll Down. And, and I commend that book to you. It's I, can't, I think the, the last version came out in 2006, but it's called Let Justice Roll Down. John Perkins, he is a civil rights champion, a Christian pastor, African-American brother who has championed justice. And he shares the story back in the fall of 1969. He says, Perkins became the leader in an economic boycott of white-owned stores in Mendenhall. They were supporting segregation. They were opposed to the voter registration of blacks. And so um, he exercised good civil disobedience. He said, we're not going to support people who are supporting segregation and, and or against voter registration. And then on February 7th, 1970, that is not that long ago, by the way, 47 years ago, 1970, Following the arrest of students, they'd taken part in a protest march in Mendenhall, a peaceful protest. Perkins, he was arrested. And then not only was he arrested, he was tortured by white police officers in Brandon Jail. And in his book, he, he tells the story of how he was beaten in this Mississippi jail in 1970. You know, so before, by the way, before you realize that you might need to put on kindness and humility and compassion and love to brothers and sisters of a different ethnic background, different color than your skin, you might need to understand that this is not distant past as well. But he says, he was beaten in this Mississippi jail. He was repeatedly kicked and stomped on. As he lay in a fetal position for protection, the beating went on and on. And he writhed in a pool of his own blood while inebriated officers took turns using feet and blackjacks. At one point, an officer took an unloaded pistol, put it to Perkins' head, and pulled the trigger. Then another bigger man beat him until he was unconscious. Made him clean up his own blood after that. The night wore on and it got worse. During a conscious period, one officer pushed a fork down his throat. It was barbarous torture, a great substantive reason to hate. But this is what happened, as John Perkins tells it. He says in his own words, the Spirit of God worked on me as I lay on that bed. An image formed in my mind the image of the cross, Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. 
He understood that he cared because he himself had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached. Yet he was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and even got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to a rough wooden plank and killed. Killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying, but when he looked at that mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them. And he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they don't know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I could not get away from that. It's a profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. I know it's true because it happened to me. You know, so many times we can feel justified in our unforgiveness and holding a grudge. We can feel justified in being bitter or resentful. You know, you might have, and you probably have been, legitimately offended or sinned against in the church, in your small group by me, by your small group leader, by someone here. We don't want to excuse those things. But we do want to lead with forgiveness as God and Jesus has forgiven us. Not complaining. He doesn't say complain. He says if you you have a complaint, then forgive. Like Jesus forgave. Is anybody here you need to forgive? Anybody here you're holding a grudge against? Anybody here you're bitter against? Anybody here you're resenting? If so, that's not the clothing of your new self. That's not who Jesus has made you to be. If so, you're probably struggling with seeing him as your all. See Jesus as your all in all. See the fact that he has forgiven you. Let his forgiveness have its due effect on you. The last piece of clothing that we're called to put on is, it says, he says, above all these, look in Colossians 3, 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That is a picture of a man who is clothed or a woman who is clothed. And over all these clothes, what's holding the whole outfit together of all these things to put on, kindness and compassion and and meekness and humility and long-suffering is binding all those things together, keeping them together, enabling all those things to stay on, enabling us to keep our clothes on is love, it says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If you are seeking to love each other as Christ, as God in Christ has loved you, that will enable you to put on love like a belt that holds all your clothes together. If Christ is our all, if we truly understand his love, if we relish that he's chosen us in his mercy, that he's called us in his kindness, he's drawn us in his compassion that he shows tender mercies anew to us every day if you understand that then that's going to be seen in how we treat each other in this gospel community in this community that's been defined and been established by the good news of jesus christ and by him being our all in all that's what we mean when we say that we are a gospel-centered community by the way it doesn't mean that we get it right but it means that we have the right basis for our community and that's how we want to relate to each other. Are you striving for that? Are you seeking for that?
The love of God enables us to love one another. Now, now don't, don't worry, we're not gonna actually get to the latter part of these verses. I'm, I'm truncating the message. We're not gonna hit the other parts, not the verses 15, 16, and 17 today. But we need to see that the love of God enables us to love one another, that he defines us because he's chosen us, because he's our all, because we are holy and beloved in him then we can put on who he's made us to be. We can, we can crawl out of our shells. We can, we can soar with the wings that he's given to us. And we're growing in that. And that's what we want to grow in. But, but just in, in, in a few thoughts in the next five minutes or so as we close, is what, what are you supposed to do, though, if you're not experiencing that? Because let's be honest, we don't all experience that. We, we're, we're not fake. We don't believe that we do this perfectly. So what do we do when we don't experience this kind of gospel community? What do you do, what do, you do when you experience that? Well, a few things. If, if, you, if you must complain, then make your complaint known to God in prayer and leave it there. Pray for other people in your church. Pray for people here. Stop complaining to other people. Make your complaint known to God and then pray for other people. Now, I don't mean, you know, have those public prayers that acknowledges other people's sins publicly. I really need to pray for them. They're a really angry person. I need to pray for their sins. Don't, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about take it to the Lord in prayer privately and then seek comfort in Christ. Don't look for comfort by somebody else here. Seek comfort in Christ. Seek satisfaction in Jesus. Let him be your all in all. You know, you, you are not going to find a perfect community. Why? Because you and I are not perfect. So when we join a community, it's no longer perfect. We will fail each other. Seek Christ as your all. Examine yourself. Is is there anything that makes it hard for other people to have community with me? Do I have patterns and habits that I need to change? Is there things in my life that I need to put off? Are there... Are there practical things? Do I need to go to care group to have community? Do I need to start serving? Do I need to practice hospitality? Are there, are there, is there a work schedule I need to change? Do I need to, do I need to say no to too many sports for my kids and, and so that I'm not driven all over the place by all of the activities in our family? Do we need to say no to hobbies? Do we need to change some things so that we can actually experience loving community? Pursue loving others without demanding love in return. Ask yourself, how, do, how can I create and model the community I want to see without demanding that I see it? You know, some barriers to this. I was thinking about, what are some barriers to this gospel community? Well, one of the barriers is really the reverse of some of what we've been talking about. And instead, of, instead of seeing that we're righteous in Christ, that we're holy, we've been made holy in Jesus, one of the barriers is that, that self-righteousness that says, I understand how to love other people and community, and you should too if you just tried hard enough. Your problem is you're not trying hard enough, and so I'm frustrated and I'm going to walk away from it because that person is so shallow or weak because if they just worked at it, they'd be better. See that God's made them holy and had to make you holy and it requires his righteousness. Another barrier, think about legalism, this, that community or fellowship. And by the way, we can make community an idol. We can make gospel-centered community an idol and that can actually become legalistic and a barrier to having fellowship and relationship with other people because it doesn't look like what we think it should look like. So because when I get together, people, they're not really deep or it's not like X, Y, Z or however you think it should look. And so that's not real community. So I'm no longer going to have community there because I can't do that. And that's not a legalism, but it's pride. Instead of humility, the barrier is Pride. Another way pride manifests is the thinking that says, I've got everything to offer and you've got nothing to offer me. I can't really learn from you because you're not as mature, as godly, as discerning, or as whatever as I am. Another barrier is self-sufficiency. You know, I don't, I don't, it's the attitude that says, I don't need others. I'm okay on my own. We're fine by ourselves. Fine. If I don't get community the way I think it should be, then I'm just going to go home and take my toys and play with myself and be on my own and I'm fine. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need those. My family, we're all okay. 
which leads into selfishness instead of compassion. Sometimes selfishness is that attitude says, I don't want to be with anybody else because it's just too hard. It's hard. Living like this is difficult. It's hard. This attitude says, I don't, I don't want to share myself, my things, my time, because it's costly. There's no payback for me. I'm not, I'm not getting any return. I've tried it. It doesn't seem to pay off. It's not worth the investment any longer. I'm going to stop it. And what you're saying is that ultimately you're selfish and you don't see that Jesus laid down himself for you. Another barrier is self-focus. You know, it's the attitude that says, I don't see the, I don't see the importance. I don't see the importance of being in a close relationship with others because it doesn't help me. These people here, they don't help me. I'm too busy. I've got too many things to do. I need to think about other people, do things for them. I don't have the time for that. I, I, I barely have time for myself. I'm glad Jesus didn't think that way. The other barrier is laziness. It's just too hard. It takes too much time. I can't. I don't feel like it. I, don't, I just want to take it easy. I need a break tonight. You know what? Most nights when I come home from work, I'm just too busy, and I need to take it easy, and so I'm not going to go to a small group, or I'm not going to reach out to people, or I'm not going to have hospitality in my home, because you know what? I just need to relax and unwind, because life is too hard right now. Well, when is life not going to be hard, by the way? And I'm glad that Jesus didn't feel like it was just too hard, even to the point of shedding blood on the cross. I'm going to close just asking a few questions for application. How do we apply this? How do we live out this kind of kindness and compassion and meekness and humility and gentleness and love? How do we bind all these things in love? Let me ask you just some some real practical questions here. Do you view your home as yours or as God's home that you steward for his purposes? Do you see your time as, as your own or as God's time that you steward for his purposes? you see your resources, your things, your money as God's own resources or do you see them as yours? Do you, well maybe how does your use of time, talents and resources reflect that you are a part of God's loving family? How do you see that? If you look at your time, look at your talents, your resources, How does it reflect that you're a part of God's family, that you're looking to put these things on, that Christ is your all? Does your time, your talents, your resources, they reflect that Jesus is your all? Are you intentionally loving one another like Christ has loved you? Are you looking to love others like Christ has loved you? you, Are you harboring unforgiveness and bitterness or resentment? Is Christ your all? Does the love of Christ compel you and motivate you to live for him in every area of life? Do you, I was thinking about this, do you view loving one another as just a duty? Or do you see this as the primary way that you actually love God? And I'll say these things condemn us, but that, this is the kind of community we, we're shooting for. Now we're gonna fail. That's why we need to forgive each other. Because we're all gonna fail. I'm gonna fail you. I already have. I'm going to continue to. I'm not okay with that. I want to repent from those things. I want to continue to learn and grow. We're all learning and growing. We're all trying to grow and improve. But in the midst of that, we need to be loving and humble and meek and compassionate, forgive each other, and let love bind all those things. That's what we're shooting for. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our all. Let him be our all. Let him define us because he's chosen us and made us holy and beloved. as part of his new community, this is what it looks like to love one another. This is what it looks like to live in community, in a gospel-centered community. And I pray that God will enable us to refocus on him as our all, to live that way, to clothe ourselves with Christ with the same love that he's loved us. Amen? Let's pray and have the band go ahead and come up. And Actually,